Have you ever heard of a mic drop moment? Maybe you've had a mic drop moment. If you're unfamiliar with what a mic drop moment is, it's um, generally when people are speaking in public and they have a microphone, uh, they make a point. They have the final word. And so they go, they drop the mic, right? Well, as we turn to John chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 29 today, we're going to see that Jesus has a mic drop moment. For those of you who were not with us last week, or maybe if you've slept a few times and forgot what we talked about last week, Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. And people got really angry about that. This man who has been paralyzed for 38 years was healed, and the Jewish leaders were angry with Jesus. Why? Well, because it was on the Sabbath, and they, they were mad about that. Uh, they thought Jesus was breaking the Sabbath. He wasn't. But then when they confront Jesus about it, verse 17 says, But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And the Jewish leaders, they understood what Jesus was saying. That's why verse 18 is the connector between the story of the man healed at the pool of Bethesda and what Jesus says today and in the weeks to come, what we'll, what we'll look at. And verse 18 says this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath in their minds, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They were angry about that. And now Jesus is going to talk to them, and he's going to have a mic drop moment. So let's read the text, and we'll understand it more. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is a difficult passage. And if we just read it very quickly, we may misunderstand what Jesus is saying. In fact, it doesn't come easy to us. Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethesda. Very easy. Jesus heals a guy. 
right? But here, there's, there's so much content. There's so much context. And so what is Jesus getting at? Well, our big idea for this morning is that Jesus' unique authority, derived from his unity with the Father, demands your submission. Okay, there's a, there's a couple ideas there. Jesus' unique authority. And, and I could have shortened the big idea and said Jesus' Jesus's unique authority demands your submission. But it's, he's so intertwined with the Father. His authority comes from the Father. He's united with the Father. So we, we need that in our big idea. So if you get nothing else from this sermon, this is what you need to understand. Jesus' unique authority, and it is unique, no one else is like him, is derived from his unity with the Father, and it demands your submission. So we're going to look at uh, this big idea. We're going to break it down into two sections. First is Jesus' unique authority from the Father. So let's start in verse 19, where we began reading, and we'll look at what Jesus said. He says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Now, mind you, Jesus is not saying that he cannot do anything. In fact, John, as he's writing this book, has already said that Jesus can do a lot. He just healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. Before that, he healed a boy who was miles and miles away from him. Uh, Jesus has power. Jesus has intelligence. Jesus has already taught uh, people like the woman at the well or Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus can do things. But what the text is saying in in his opening statement is, uh, Jesus is saying, yeah, Jewish leaders, you got this right. I am equal with the Father. In fact, I am so equal with the Father, I am God as He is God. What Jesus is saying is that He does not do anything on His own accord, with His own mind, or for His own glory. But Jesus always acted and always does act for the glory of God. Why? Because He has the very mind of God. He has the very purpose of God. And so He does the works of God. That's important for us to see. But what does that mean? Well, it does not mean that Jesus is powerless, but that he is so connected to his Father that everything else that Jesus says as as he describes who he is to these Jewish leaders is going to be connected to the Father. The authority either, either comes from the Father or he works with the Father to accomplish his purposes. So how do we break that down? Uh, what does that mean for us? What, what, is it, what is the work of the Father and the Son? Why does this happen? Well, I think those questions are answered as we look at the text. Now, in the Greek, as I was studying, there's four F-O-R statements, four statements, okay? Uh, in, in your English translations, there's likely three, four statements. And then they kind of said, well, this is like really boring English, so we, we won't put the last four in there, Okay. But it's there in verse 22 as well. And so we're going to look at these four statements as we uh, unravel Jesus' unique authority from the Father. So the first four statement is found in verse 19. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Um, Jesus does not want the Jewish leaders who are so upset at Jesus' claim of unity with God, who were raised to say the Shema each and every day, to, to, to think that, Jesus is somehow equal with God, but also separate. 
Now, for you and I, that may not make a lot of sense. But let me, let me break it down for you. So, in the Old Testament, Moses gave the law to God's people. And in the law, there is the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. And every good Jewish boy and Jewish girl would recite that every single day. And it begins like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So from infancy, these Jewish leaders were acquainted that there's only one God. But then right in front of their face, there's a man who's healing somebody on the Sabbath. And then he just says he's equal with God. But if God is in heaven and don't the Psalms make that clear? Our God is in the heavens. He does what, all that he pleases. If, if God is in the heavens and this guy, Jesus, is right here, what's going on? The Jewish leaders think Jesus is committing blasphemy. But Jesus is saying, on the contrary, I'm not separate from God. There is still only one God, but I am I'm his son. I'm a part of God. We are one. And he's trying to get that across to them. And so he says in verse 19, for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Um, we can understand this a little bit with apprentices. You guys know what apprentices are, right? Uh, there used to be a television show called The Apprentice, and they'd have to go out and, and, and do different things. Um, some could say that I was an apprentice for my grandfather. When I was 13, I had to save up for driver's ed. Right, driver's ed was three hundred and like fifty bucks, and I had to pay for it myself. So I'm like, I need a job. And I didn't take driver's ed when I was thirteen. I was just somehow planning for the future. <laughs> so I got a job with my grandpa, who's a welder, and he can fix almost anything underneath the sun. And I cannot. I've talked about that before. I'm really, really bad with that stuff. But from age thirteen to age twenty, I did every dummy job for my grandpa during the summers. Okay. Um, I riveted. If, if you've never riveted anything, that's really easy. There's a hole, and you stick a gun there, and you go, poof, and that's, that's all you do, right? It, dummies can do that job, and I did that. My grandpa tried to teach me to weld. I cannot weld. Uh, he tried to teach me to do lots of other things. I can't do that. So I would be a poor apprentice, right? Even though my grandfather tried to show me how to be a welder, how to fix things, how to do I was really, really bad at it. My brother, on the other hand, my brother, five years younger than me, my senior year of high school, he started working for my grandfather. And my brother is just really good with his hands. Very, and he's just very intelligent, great guy. And he starts picking up on things that my, my, like, my grandfather had given up on me, like at that point. I was just the muscle, okay? So, you know, I'd pick up the big things. But my brother, he took to it. He saw what my grandpa did and then he would do those jobs. And so my 13-year-old brother was able to do work that my grandpa showed him. In the, in the same manner, back in Jesus' day, they would have had apprentices for everything. They didn't have colleges and high schools. They learned the law, to be sure. But if you were a leather worker, you would have to apprentice with a leather worker. And most of the time, it was your own father. So what Jesus is telling the Jewish leaders is, I have seen my father work, and so I am doing my father's work. I have been trained in this way. But something that we need to look out for, an error that we can sometimes make, is that even in a text like this, where, where Jesus is saying he is equally God, 
we can, we can just say, okay, the Father and the Son are exactly the same without any distinction. And that's not true. Uh, even though they are both equally God, they are distinct persons of the Trinity. They are distinct in how they work. Uh, I think uh, theologian D.A. Carson, I think he helpfully points out uh, in, in this text what Jesus is saying. He says this about the Father. The Father initiates. The Father sends. The Father commands. The Father commissions. The Father grants. What does the Son do? The Son responds. He obeys. He performs His Father's will. And He receives authority. So there's, even though there's the same purpose, there's the, there's the same mind, they both have distinct roles. And so we need to be aware of that. Because in Jesus' distinct roles, um, there is only one son. And you and I could never live up to what this son, Jesus Christ, was called to live to. You see, uh, God demanded from his people in Leviticus 19 that they were called to be holy as God is holy. But there was not a single person who was ever holy until Jesus the demands of the Son, the demands of the Messiah to have the mind of God and the purpose of God to do the works of God, only one person could do that, and that was Jesus. And so we see in his sonship, as he says, I do what my Father does, we see that Jesus is the one. He's the only one that we can have hope in, that we can have life in. He's going to talk about that later on. The second four statement is for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He is doing. And what drives this relationship of the Father and the Son, what drives Jesus to do the works of the Father, is the love of God. Is the love of God. Now, I get that as a dad. And I get that as a son. Most of you know my, my dad had a stroke two Thursdays ago. And... I love my dad dearly. I know some of you have had bad dads. I, I'm not one of those people. I've had a wonderful father. Biggest mentor in my life. And so as I drove to Cincinnati to, to go to the hospital for my dad, I was, I was thinking, man, w what happens if he's not there? Like I know, in a sense, my dad will love me forever, but if, if, if he were to die... I'm not able to call him on the phone anymore. I'm not able to ask advice. I'm not able to, to really receive his love. In the, in the same manner, I have two boys of my own. I love them. I have two girls too, and I love them too, but it's father-son relationship here. Just in case Ellie and Emma watch this sermon way later, I love you girls. I love my sons. I, I watched... I watched my son Hezekiah play soccer yesterday. He's six. His team is not very good. They lost 12 to 1. But I watched my son. He was playing hard. And I was just like, yeah. I, I love my son and I'm loved by my father. And, and so after the soccer game, I was trying to give Hezekiah a few pointers, not necessarily on soccer because I shouldn't do that, but just in athletics and keeping your chin up even when you're on a bad team, things like that. What motivated that? Love. 
I love my son. So too, the father loves his son. And and the motivation of of propping Jesus up is, is from the love of God. But look at what happens there. It says, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Greater works? Greater works than what? The healing of the man at Bethesda. Guys, this this just happened. Jesus just healed this man. Verse 19 says, so Jesus said to them, this is part of the story. Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. He was paralyzed for 38 years. Healed. And then Jesus says, you think that's something? You ain't seen nothing yet. So what works are they going to marvel at? Well, it's in the next four statement. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This greater work is the resurrection from the dead. Now, in our day and age, the resurrection from the dead is something that we talk a lot about in October right? October 31st, uh, we're all good Christian people and we think of that as Reformation Day, but everyone else thinks of that as Halloween. And so people talk about the resurrection from the dead. So you'll see zombies or whatever else, Frankenstein, who's like half dead, half alive. Uh, you, you, you see that in October. But even at, in a larger sphere, um, our our culture in the last several years, especially um, with things like Harry Potter. Harry Potter was raised from the dead, right? Uh, we have um, Lord of the Rings. There's numerous people that are raised from the dead different times. In our culture, we talk about the resurrection from the dead. But do we really believe it? Do we really believe that zombies are going to just rise out from the grave? No, not really. Do, do we believe that, you know, like a boy who dies is just going to rise up? No, we don't really believe that. And the society at large doesn't really believe in the resurrection from the dead. But uh, you know, here's the issue for us, people. If you're here and you're a Christian, you believe something really weird. You believe in the resurrection from the dead. You believe in what is not humanly possible. You, you see, what, what Jesus is saying here to these people is that he does the works of God. There, there were some distinctions in the Jewish mindset of what only God could do. And one of them was raising the dead. And so these Jewish leaders who were teachers of the law, they would have said, in the Old Testament, only God is the one who can raise the dead, not even his special prophets or his kings, minus Elijah. That's what they would say. That, that's what they taught. But what's different about Jesus and Elijah is that when Jesus, or when Elijah raised that boy from the dead, Remember the lady who was really nice to him, gave him a room, that upper room? When Elijah raises that boy from the dead, he eventually died. What's different about Jesus' resurrection is that those he raises to life will never perish. They will never taste the final defeat of death. And here's some hope for us. Jesus compares the work of the resurrection to the work that he did at the pool of Bethesda. We talked about this last week. 
For those of you who aren't with us, I'll explain. The guy who was at the pool of Bethesda, paralyzed for 38 years old, he's a ne'er-do-well. He's a guy who, man, he's not grateful for being healed. He doesn't even ask who heals him. He goes off, he's carrying his mat, walking around. The Jewish leaders find him. They say, who healed you? I don't know. Didn't get his name. When Jesus meets him later and, and Jesus says, hey, you're healed, you're walking, don't, don't sin anymore. He doesn't say, thanks, Jesus, for healing me. He goes back to the Jewish leaders and says, it was that guy. This, this guy is not a hero of the faith whatsoever. He's a ne'er-do-well. But what we have is hope. Because Jesus compares that healing, that impossible healing at Bethesda, to the resurrection of the dead. And he gives life to ne'er-do-wells, like you and me. I'm not a perfect man. I'm the pastor, which obviously means I'm better than all of you, right? I'm not a perfect man. I sin. I'm a ne'er-do-well a lot. But it is by the grace of God that we are saved. It is by the grace of God when he says, and greater works than these will be shown him so that you may marvel. Why would God ever save sinners like us? For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. If you're in Christ, it's because Jesus willed to save you. Why? Nothing of your own accord. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. This is the grace of God. And what is tied to this giving of life and raising of the dead is the final judgment. So this is the, the fourth four statement that in the ESV it's not there, but in the Greek it is. Verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So, we clearly see Jesus is ultimately going to judge all people. But we have an issue with that. Culturally, we have an issue with that, right? Because don't we think of Jesus as the guy who's like really nice, the guy we want to be friends with, the, the, the guy who never would really condemn us, the guy we want to invite over to our parties so he turns water into wine? That's what we think of Jesus as, right? Well, Jesus wouldn't condemn me. But what we just read says otherwise. Jesus, again, is talking about a work that only God can do. God judges. Even our secular artists, the most wicked, vile, evil artists of the day, they have songs that say, only God can judge me, only God can judge us, different things like that. Uh, and they're, they're right. Only God does judge. So who's Jesus? He's God. But some of you go, wait, 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 hold on. John chapter 3, verse 17 says that Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, 
So now you're saying that there's, oh, there's an issue in the Bible. I don't have to believe the Bible because Jesus is judging over here and he says he's not going to condemn over here. No, 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 hold on. What's the last part of John 3.17? If, if you want, if you don't believe me, whatever, just turn over real fast to John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Okay, that's, that's right. But what's the second part of that? But in order that the world might be saved through him. What's going on? Is there a contradiction here? No. No. Because Jesus is coming into the world. In John chapter 5, he's in the world, and he's telling these Jewish leaders who he is. He is equal with God. He's displaying to them an opportunity for salvation. It goes on, the text goes on, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is important, listen up, this is truthful, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus is offering them eternal life. Jesus is offering to them the way of salvation, but he's also warning them that there will come a time of judgment where Jesus will be the final judge and will judge all people. And the only way of salvation is through him. So we get the idea. Jesus' unique authority is from the Father. Why? Because he is equal with God, the Father. John Calvin aptly stated, uh, Turks, which he's talking about Muslims, and Jews certainly adorn the God they worship with beautiful and fine titles. But we must hold that the name of God is nothing but an empty imagination when it is separated from Christ. The Father and the Son are one. And Jesus, Jesus is God made manifest. Jesus lived among people. Jesus is God's showing of love to the world. Jesus came to give life. And herein we see in John chapter 5, Jesus' claim of exclusivity. There is one judge, and there is one life giver, and it is Jesus Christ. You cannot come to God through any other means. You cannot come to God through your own good works. You cannot come to God through other gods or heroes. It is only through Jesus that you can come to God, that you can have a relationship with God. So, herein is where the text gets very practical. Not that the unity of the Father and the authority of Christ mean nothing. They do. But here's our practical response to Jesus' unique authority, and it is to submit to Christ. You and I are called to submit to Christ. You must submit to Christ. Jesus is plainly telling these Jewish leaders who have so clearly missed the point of his miracle at the pool of Bethesda, or at least have just been obstinate, crossing their arms, saying, we know who you say you are, but we don't want to believe. He is saying that he is the Son of God, and that it is only through believing in Jesus that anyone is saved from final judgment. Do not hear the mercy and the grace of Jesus by telling those leaders, believe, hear my word. 
Believe in him who sent me. But they don't. So Jesus starts in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In theological terms, we call this the already, not yet. Seems really confusing, right? Well, well, Jesus just said the, the time is coming, it's already here. Well, what does he mean by that? The words of God were right before the people. The person of God was right before the people. Jesus was standing there with salvation, with arms open wide, offering salvation to these Jewish leaders, to the people of his day, and he's offering salvation to you right now in his name. But there is a day that's coming when those who have believed in Christ will hear his voice and will rise again. They're already not yet. Jesus is calling for you and I, friends, to submit to his lordship, to submit to him. Why? Because God's already given him all authority. He makes that abundantly clear. There's going to be a final judgment of all people. And it doesn't matter what we believe now if we don't trust in Jesus now. Because when we get before the throne, when God, Jesus, stands before us and we stand before him he is the judge so why should we submit to him well I, it's not merely to avoid eternal judgment but to be saved to a to a life exuding from god look at verse 26 for as the father has life in himself so he has granted the son also to have life in himself just think about this for a second this is super deep i know you're staying with me. God in his being has a life exuding from him. He is the creator after all. He spoke all things into existence. And we have our life and our breath and our being because of this God. But can you imagine dwelling for eternity upon eternity upon eternity with a God that has life exuding from him? I think if you and I were to think of nothing but a perfect life and what that would look like for a million years, we couldn't even begin to fathom how awesome and wonderful that life with, with Jesus, that life with God in heaven is. Life. Life better than what you could ever imagine. Life better than if you were Jeff Bezos with a perfect marriage. Jesus, as the Son of God, has come to give you life if you hear his voice. This hearing of Christ is no mere fire insurance. Jesus is not calling people to get out of a, a jail-for-free card. He's calling people to give all of their life, dreams, aspirations, wants, worries, sorrows, burdens, sins, remorse, regrets, all of it to himself. And in exchange, he gives life. And life abundantly. So what Jesus is saying, friends, is actually pretty crazy. Why in the world would I submit my life and everything that I hope to be and everything that I want to be, why would I submit my life to a man who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago? This claim 
on your life means absolutely nothing if Jesus is not God. But make no mistake, Jesus is claiming just that. Jesus is claiming he is God, and in God is life. But friends, maybe you're here this morning and you just don't think Jesus is God. No matter how clear the text is before you, you say he's not God. So what does that mean for you? Well, keep living for yourself. Keep living as if you're your own king. Keep at your porn. Keep at your lust. Keep at your idol of self-control. Keep at your lies. Keep at your sexual sin. Keep at your disobedience to your parents. Keep at planning your life under the auspices of collecting power for yourself, for fame, for yourself, making yourself your own king. But Jesus is God, and he is eternally king. And so the demands on your life is this. Jesus is God. Are you submitting to him? Friends, some of you say, I love my sin so much, how could I ever submit to him through the grace that he provides. I heard a story this week from the daughter of a man who suffered for 20 years, a believer. He suffered um, from a medical condition that put him in and out of the hospital for 20 years. And not once did he complain. Not once did he say, why me? And his daughter asked him, why? Why don't you complain? It's God's plan. What was his response? It's God's purpose. How can you have faith like that? It only comes from God. It only comes from God. You see, faith... A definition of faith is not just merely intellectual assent to an idea. Faith is put into action. Read Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the hall of faith in our Bibles. It mentions people like Moses and Abraham, Noah. But every single time that they're mentioned, they believed God and then they act upon that belief. Have you believed God and acted on that belief? You know, uh, for some of you who are children, you might struggle with being afraid of the dark. I know my kids do. You know, one of the greatest ways you can show that you believe in Jesus is by trusting his promise that if you've trusted in Jesus, he says he's always with you, that he never leaves you nor forsakes you. And so one of the greatest ways, if you're afraid of the dark, is to remember the promise and close your eyes and trust Jesus. That's hard. Some of you adults, you like to worry. Well, you really don't like to worry, but you worry and you have fear. You have anxiety that builds up in your heart. I think that promise is still true for you too if you're in Christ that he never leaves you nor forsakes you. If Jesus was right next to me, would I ever have any wants or needs? No. 
But Jesus dwells in us. He's with us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. So how can we practice this faith in, the, in submitting our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? By believing and acting. And sometimes it looks like uh, gathering brothers or sisters in Christ with you and say, I am really struggling with fear right now. I'm really struggling with worry. W- would you pray with me? Would you pray for me that I would believe in the promises of God? That I, I would... Um, place all my anxiety upon him because I remember that he cares for me. That is submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ in a very practical way. Because herein is an issue in not only our church, but churches across the United States is that people have said, at one time, I said a prayer. At one time, I walked forward. At one time, I filled out a card and I said, I wanted to believe in Jesus. But then your life How you live your life looks completely different than trusting him as your sovereign king. And what I fear for you is that in that last judgment, when God's voice goes forth, your judgment is not one of sonship, but one of judgment. Why should you submit yourself to Jesus? Because he's the son of man. Daniel 7, I'm going to take you there real fast. Daniel 7 is one of the best passages of scripture, and I believe Jesus, with my whole heart, would want us to go here at this time. Daniel 7, 13. And I say that because he calls himself the son of man over 80 times throughout the Gospels. And he does so right here, right after he called himself the son of God. He's the son of God and son of man. And what does that refer to? Daniel has a vision of heaven And there's the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days, he's crowned in heaven. All of heaven is rejoicing in him. But then comes one like the Son of Man in Daniel 7.13. And Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Take that to the bank. That is a promise. And that's who Jesus says he is. Verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And Jesus says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The hour's coming. Just as Jesus said earlier that the hour was coming is already here. He, he was there. Salvation is offered to you, those of you sitting in this room today, to repent and believe in Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. He completely pleased God in all that he ever did. That Jesus died on the cross for you and was raised again on the third day, the firstborn of the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus is offering you hope if you believe in him today. But there's something else coming, judgment. Jesus says the authority is given to him to judge in that final judgment. 
How do you avoid the wrath of God in that final judgment? Well, verse, verse 28 says, or verse 29 says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. That's where we want to be. Are you good enough? Friends, you can never be good enough. But do you want to know what is good? What in John 6, 29, Jesus says this. If you want to honor his father, if you want to do good, this is what you're called to do. John 6, 29 says, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. If you want to be in that judgment of life, believe on Jesus. Come to Christ. Friends, I, I, I warn you, if you have not done so, you will face a judgment. Because in our Christian life, it's weird. I told you a couple times, our Christian faith is kind of weird. We believe in the resurrection from the dead. But we don't believe in just the resurrection from the dead for Christians. When you drive past those cemeteries, every single one of those people, Christian and non, will be raised on the last day. And all will be judged. Many being judged forever under the wrath of God. But God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to offer you life. Jesus' unique authority derived from his unity with the Father demands your submission. Live for him.